You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin for supporting The Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live Uncommon. Today is a day that the church commemorates a particular individual. You might call him a saint, church father. Sure. Maybe multiples <laughs> of, of those. Joining us today for our great discussion in church history, the Reverend Dr. Joel Ilowski, Professor of Historical Theology at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. Dr. Ilowski, welcome back to the Coffee Hour. Yeah, thanks. It's good to be with you again, especially after Thanksgiving. We have so much to be thankful for, right? Indeed, yep. indeed. And continuing our conversation with commemorations, just yesterday was Nicholas of Mira, mm-hmm. uh, I think. And so today, Ambrose of Milan. What What is Ambrose of Milan best known for? Well, gosh, I suppose it depends who you talk to. In terms of <laughs> theology, of course, he was the great well, antagonist against Arianism, I suppose. But I think a lot of people would remember him for his kind of his, his relationship between church and state and his kind of, how should we say, schooling the emperor a bit, you know, at one point even showing kind of a relationship between church and state. But I also see him as, you know, a good musician who introduces some fascinating music into the life of the church and a and of course, often forgotten is his role in biblical interpretation. And, and of course, especially how he taught Augustine to read scripture. So um, all of those, I think, would be areas for fruitful discussion. But there are at least some that come to mind. So we have a lot to cover in the next 25 minutes. So let's let's go back to the beginning. What do we know about his early life, his his youth, all of those good details in, in history? Sure. Well, of course, Ambrose. And it's interesting that his parents gave him the name Ambrose. If you know the etymology of that, it's, it's kind of similar to the name Athanasius in Greek, that both of them have this idea of immortal or, or beyond you know, life kind of thing. So they're larger than life figures enough. And, you know, he, so he was born around 340 and uh, there's always the question about where could it have been in Lyon? I think it probably was in Trier, which is in Germany, you know, kind of close to where Luxembourg is, if you think about your modern day map. And so, you know, he had a decent childhood, was of course brought up like most uh, people who were brought up by Christian parents who were more well off. He would have had a good education and kind of the basics of rhetoric and probably also some religion, but also ultimately, uh, you know, he decided to choose a career in law. So I assume his education would have also had that entailed in it, as well as with his brother too. Both of them were kind of trained in law like their dad, I suppose, in that way. Um, Kind of a tragic detail that his father died when he was only a teenager, you know, when uh, Empress was only a teenager. So I think probably, what, about 13 or so, and that had to be kind of rough on him and, and his brother and sister. So it turns out at that point that his mother decided to move to Rome. I guess that's usually what people did, where there was more of a, probably a support network in some ways. Although Trier, of course, where he was born, was also known as the place where emperors like to hang out too. So there is that. But uh, they moved to Rome and that's where he probably got the majority of his education at that point. And as I said, um, he would have pursued law. That's what we find out, that he was actually a a very good student and kind of excelled to the point where he got a good position, a plum position, if you will, and became governor in 374. So that would be what about he was 34 and 44 years old. Yes, it is. Became governor and official in Liguria and Emilia. So that's, that's kind of in Northern Italy. So he ended up 
living in Milan. And that's where we get kind of his connection then for the rest of his life with Milan that way. So, it, and as you talked about Milan, of course, later on in the 20th century becomes known for fashion, but I don't think that was the reason they were, he was there. But, uh, yeah. Please. He wasn't like a great trendsetter in fashion. fashion icon. You know, he might have been. He did talk about some clerical wear and things like that. And people should not overdress, shall we say, for the, the clerical office as sometimes was happening. But that's another story we don't have to get into. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned he studied law. This is a side note, but I, I'm trying to, I, I have, don't have a record of this, but I'm, I'm noticing a common theme here among church fathers, theologians, mm. reformers. Who studied law? Do you, is this something you keep a keep a record of, Doctor Lowski? <laughs> how many how many church fathers or theologians or reformers who've made history study law? You know, in fact, I often thought of going into that too myself before. You know, now that you bring it up, I did even laud a competition where I won my, my case, but even though the guy was guilty, but uh, yeah, no, it would be interesting to kind of just tally that because you're exactly right that a large number of them seem to have. Had that position, you know, and we we saw the same thing with Cyprian, I think, in one of our previous discussions. And there's something to be said for the fact that these government officials were often identified by the church as somebody who would make a very good leader in, in the church. So often it was kind of the church who looked to these guys, both for their you know, background in law, which meant that they could do administratively well, but it also probably meant that they were kind of on the upper scale of wealth, too. You know, so that the, the churches could count on these, uh, these figures, you know, supporting the churches too. So I think there's, there's some kind of correlation there that we could perhaps work out other time. Yeah. What was going on in the church at the time of Ambrose uh, finishing his education and, and, and moving into adult life? Yeah. Because of course, as I said, he's born around 340. So you had the Aryan, well, the Arianism was supposed to have been fixed, right, at the Council of Nicaea in 325. But as I said previously, it was kind of like whack-a-mole, the game, you know, where it just keeps popping up. And of course it does that. And so those years between 325 and let's say the next ecumenical council in 381 were a bit of, a, it was a bit of turmoil in the life of the church as well as the empire in terms of kind of the relationship between Arianism and Nazi. And you do see the, the two kind of going back and forth in depending on who's in power in in political realm and who also would, you know, kind of have the upper hand in the theological circles. So it was interesting that in Milan, especially at the time when when uh, Ambrose becomes bishop, that that previous bishop was, his name was Auxentius, and he actually was an Arian bishop. And so Milan was pretty much firmly in the Arian camp, and it would have had some, you know, um, how should we say, imperial support for that, especially in the emperor's wife, Faustina, you know, so Ambrose, but at this time, I mean, before, let's just say he was simply a government official at this point, right? And so I don't know if I can get into kind of how he became bishop, if you'd want to move into that. It's kind of an interesting story. I think before we do that, we've been mentioning Arianism a lot. Let's, can we do a, a quick primer on on what Arianism is, because it, it played such a, a significant role in, in how we remember him. Oh, sure. Uh, and I always like to say, you have your local Arians who come to visit you when they knock on your door. We call them Jehovah's Witness, you know, today. But basically, this idea that Jesus was, he was a divine being, but he wasn't God. And so they were very, Arians were very 
concerned about protecting the Godhead, you know, with any kind of subordinationism or anything like that. So they would refer to Jesus as a divine figure, even the Son of God, but not God. And this was what was kind of fought over it. And I see in 325, when you have those phrases, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. These were all directed against the presbyter Arius, who, you know, by the time Ambrose is born, Arius has died. He died in what, around 337, something like that. So, but, but again, this idea that the son was subordinate to the father, so to protect the Godhead, that was very prominent in uh, Arian teaching. And, you know, then there become various factions, even within Arianism, how to describe that, but we don't have to get into that detail. So this teaching of Arius really became prevalent in the church and, and really departed from orthodoxy. So this was a significant issue in the church at that time then. Oh, definitely. And if you think about the Nicene Creed again, they tied it all to salvation. You know, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit, you know. So for them, it wasn't just kind of a, how many angels are dancing on the head of a pen or something. It wasn't a arcane theological discussion, but people would even argue about this in the marketplaces and things. You know, it became a very partisan issue. And we like to kind of look at the early church as all this nice time when everybody just got along and there was peace. And, you know, when Ambrose was born and grew up, it was a pretty conflicted church on this issue because it was at the heart and core of who actually saved you. And if it's anybody less than God, the Orthodox said, then you, your salvation is in jeopardy. So for them, this was not a small issue. So tell us about the steps that led up to him becoming bishop. Yeah, very good. Well, of course, as I mentioned, this, this bishop in Milan, Auxent, was a very pro-Aryan bishop. And while well, he died in 374, and, and as I mentioned, that was also the time when, uh, when Ambrose had to become a government official. So, you know, he had previous experience with other things, but this was kind of his, his kind of first big appointment, shall we say. And so one of his jobs was to make sure that, uh, that there was peace in the empire and peace in his province, just like, you know, Constantine wanted back when the original Arian controversy happened. And so when Absentius died, they had a church council meeting. I, he, I shouldn't say this about church council meetings, but sometimes they can be rather raucous, shall we say. But our uh, church council meetings today pale in comparison to back then, where it could even break out in fistfights and things like that. And when it came, you know, to who to call as their next pastor, there was real conflict. And Ambrose, as the proconsul, shall we say, or the consul, was there as governor, and he could see that things were getting out of hand, you know. So last thing he wanted was to have a big eruption riot in his province. So he spoke up and was able to calm everybody down. And as he did so, you know, he said, let's, you know, let's have cooler heads prevail in all this when you're going to elect your next pastor. And all of a sudden, at least this is what, you know, some of the historical accounts say, and you never know whether they add details to this, but somebody said, Ambrose for bishop. And, and uh, you know, then that kind of got louder. Yeah, God, wait a minute, Ambrose for bishop. And he was thinking, this is not what I signed up for, right? You know, I'm the governor. I, I don't need to be involved with this, but the, kind of the, the chant got louder and they wanted him to be, they wanted him to be bishop. But there's one, only one problem with this, that Ambrose at this point was what we call a, a catechumen. So he still was taking catechism classes, you know, from his, his own pastor. Uh, he didn't think, you know, he should be, they should nominate him as bishop. He wasn't even baptized yet. So... They decided to take those objections out of the way, shall we say, by having him baptized and then catechized and 
the next week he was ordained bishop <laughs> all within you know, a week, which of course violated a whole bunch of church council canons and stuff from previous councils, but they didn't seem to care about that. So that's how he kind of got into the role as bishop, that the people themselves kind of chose him. He didn't put his name for it. And I would say he's another one of those examples of a reluctant bishop, shall we say. We have more to learn about Ambrose of Milan with our guest, the Reverend Dr. Joel Ilowski, professor of historical theology at Concordia Seminary in just a moment. You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason to use your God-given gifts to help others, to live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world, to live a life that's uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50-plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live uncommon. Welcome back to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. Today is December 7th. The church commemorates Ambrose of Milan. Our guest today, the Reverend Dr. Joel Ilowski, professor of historical theology at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. So we've learned a bit about this, this controversy, Arianism, and how Ambrose became Bishop of Milan, a very busy week for him, baptized, <laughs> catechized, and ordained all in a short amount of time in order to become Bishop of Milan. What... What was his, uh, what was Ambrose's position on Arianism since this was such a, a big controversy at that time? Yeah, and uh, I should also say seminarians should not get the idea in their head that they can finish seminary that fast. It doesn't work that way. So this is an exception to the rule, all right? Just want to make sure I got that out there. But in terms of his kind of opposition to Arianism, you know, he, he would have been very much in the train of Athanasius, you know, in that understanding of, of Christ being fully God. In fact, you know, there are, he was, Ambrose then became quite the teacher in the church. I mean, he definitely knew how to teach. He just wasn't a student. He knew how to teach. And he actually, um, you know, even taught the emperor Gratian. He wrote a, a treatise called De Fide, you know, on the faith that he helped kind of catechize the emperor to understand the importance of the fact that Jesus is not a subordinate being, but that he is, I mean, to use the Greek phrase, I suppose, homoousios or or in a substantia, he's one with the Father, and uh, there is no ranking that way. That he, so he promoted Christ as, not promoted Christ as the right term, I suppose, but spoke about him as, as fully God in every sense, uh, that the Father is God, but nonetheless, there were still the distinctions between the persons. And the other thing that we often forget about uh, Ambrose contributing to is, um, you know, the third person of the Trinity. Now, so he had, I think he probably would have said, you know, this, this issue settled in one sense. And of course, he helps ultimately get out. He has kind of the law of the land, if you will, even with the emperors uh, under Theodosius and others that happened later when Theodosius comes on the throne in 380. But we often forget, as I say, about kind of the third person of the Trinity and that Ambrose, having read the work by Basil of Caesarea, who had written a, a work on the Holy Spirit, Basil then translates this work and kind of brings it into the Latin world, too, that the Holy Spirit is also to be considered not just divine, but also God, you know, because that was, that was where the Arians were also pushing, that the, 
they called the spirit, the Holy Spirit, kind of a, a tertiary being, a third being, if you will, you know, with the son being second. And, and the, so there was a lot of ferment in the 60s, 360s about uh, the role of the Holy Spirit in the Trinity too. So Ambrose was able to establish the divinity of the Holy Spirit and uh, kind of bring that thought from the East into the West that way too. So I don't want to you know, leave that out as a further clarification, shall we say, because as goes the sun, so goes the spirit and as goes the spirit, so goes the sun. So if, if the sun is just a divine being, but not God, then the spirit is just a divine being and not God and vice versa. You know, if the spirit's just an angel or something like that, or a high being, well, then the same must be true for the sun because of the relationship of the two and the spirit being a spirit of the sun. So did I get too much into the weeds or, or do you want further <laughs> clarification? No, that's all very interesting. And and I think thinking through these early church fathers, it's so interesting, the the doctrine that we say, the things we confess every Sunday in, in church and maybe don't think twice about all the time were so significant to the lives of these early Christians and, and these people who were, who were really having to, to deal with these and, and really parse these doctrines out. In the early church, I just I think it's it's really interesting to to think more deeply about those things too. So Ambrose was a governor, and then he was bishop. So then, what was his relationship with the Roman emperors? Kind of having the both sides of of experience, being in in government, and then as a bishop, what was his relationship like with? All of those Roman emperors, you mentioned one or two of them already. Yeah, well, and that's fascinating to think about that because it's, you know, you see a divine providence in action here that God had kind of prepared this individual, Ambrose, you know, for, for a, a special role in the life of the church because, you know, you get the emperors at this time, as I said before, you know, they, they pretty much controlled uh, the, the Arianism or Orthodoxy. They had a lot, of, lot to say in that. And so, first of all, I, I, I want to highlight kind of the the catechetical aspect of his role, that he did indeed see it as part of his job to instruct these emperors in the faith. The other fact being that they were very receptive to this, both Gratian and then later uh, Theodosius. Of course, one of the incidents that kind of highlights though kind of the relationship between church and state, shall we say, was the issue when Theodosius, I guess there was there was something that happened where some of, some of his military officers were either dissed or maybe even they were killed, you know, and Theodosius kind of was very ticked off. Not just kind of, he was very ticked off about this. And it happened in Thessalonica where he made a decree that it was, was followed to the letter by his army where they basically went in and slaughtered a whole bunch of the people in Thessalonica. And it was, it was just a, a terrible kind of a purge, if you will. I mean, it is devastating. And, and he figured then he would just come to a communion the next Sunday and everything would be okay, right? But that isn't what happened. Ambrose, the bishop, told him, wait a minute, word has come to me of what you did in Thessalonica and you must repent. You know, and who's this bishop <laughs> telling an emperor he's got to repent? I mean, does he have a death wish, the bishop that is, you know? But he spoke truth to power. And, you know, Theodosius didn't just say, okay, you know, it took some time. It took probably about eight months or so while, you know, he... He worked through this and perhaps even had to work through some penitential issues and things like that. But ultimately, then he came back and submitted to Ambrose as to one that was a power that was higher than his, that, that is God's power. And Ambrose then offered him absolution after he confessed his sins. So that, scholars like to look at that as kind of setting up the stage for, you know, the church-state relationships for the next thousand years. And I suppose in some ways they've got a point. I mean, there are other kind of 
points where you can talk about with Gregory and others, but this was this was kind of setting the pattern that Ambrose was willing to stand up and say, you know, the church has a prophetic role, especially when it comes to political leaders who have sinned, but to call them out on that sin, and Ambrose did. And to Theodosius's credit, you know, he admitted to that authority, and he humbled himself in repentance and faith and uh, received them that absolution. So it's, it's a fascinating example of kind of church-state relations, if you will. With just a few minutes left, what were some of Ambrose's accomplishments or maybe his writings that, that really left a mark on the church or that we even reflect on today? Oh, very good. Of course, one of the things that I think, and this, of course, happened in 386, 387, is he had another important parishioner that came to visit, and that was Augustine, and who had come from North Africa to be a, a rhetorician in Rome, and then he got uh, promoted to Milan, and he was right there and got to hear Ambrose preach. And, and of course, Augustine had a hard time with the Old Testament because to him it didn't make a lot of sense. And he says that Ambrose gave him kind of the language for understanding the Lord's language, shall we say, in the Old Testament. And to make a long story short, that Ambrose was, ended up being the one who Augustine to faith and baptized him there in Milan, answering the prayers of Augustine's mother, Monica. So I don't think we can underestimate that because Augustine, of course, then became one of the chief influencers, shall we say, of the Middle Ages and even today, you know, and, but he learned how to read scripture from Ambrose. And so Ambrose's role in interpreting scripture, um, you know, he loved to come in on the Old Testament and we often forget about some of the exegetical texts, like his commentary on the, the Hexameron, as we call it, the, the six days of creation. These are very important as well as commenting on the lives of certain of the patriarchs. So I don't want to forget that, but of of course, also his, his works like on the sacraments, he had some of the most important writings concerning the Lord's Supper that we have, you know, on the mysteries, as he calls it. So these are pretty important. But for most parishioners, I think what they would be most interested in is uh, the fact, two things, that he introduces kind of antiphonal singing, you know, when you echo each other back and forth, like we do with the Psalms, you know, the intro and these things. Well, Ambrose was one of those to introduce that a custom that it was already in the East, but he introduced it to the Western churches. And, you know, that side that he not only was a politician, but he was a pretty good musician too. And he saw that as an important aspect of the life of the church. And, and of course, also then his hymnody, some of which are included even in our hymnal today, our Lutheran service book, we have one of my favorite Advent hymns that perhaps people even sang in church, you know, hopefully they sing in church during the Advent season, the Savior of the Nations Come, which has a lot of uh, phrases in it that would have answered Arian theology, and he answered it in, he knew the importance of hymns in codifying and helping people understand theology. But he also, we also have a couple other hymns, by the way, 874 and 890, that are also attributed to Ambrose, and others like to even attribute even more hymns to him. So there's that aspect of his work that should not be ignored either, that I think is very important. I'm looking through his list of hymnody, and it's very, very long. I, I knew that he wrote uh, Savior of the Nations Come. I didn't realize he had such an influence on church music. That is very interesting. What is there any, any final words on Ambrose, things that, that maybe we can latch on to as we celebrate and, and commemorate him today in the church? You know, one other thing, his discussion with Augustine about what do you do when you're traveling, you know, and how should you observe customs you know, in the local churches, because there were like different fasting regulations and things like that. And, and Ambrose had some interesting advice for him. He said, you know, follow local custom. And he says, so 
you know, when in Rome, I fast like the Romans do, you know, and then Milan, we don't. But that's, of course, where that phrase, when in Rome, you know, do as the Romans do, probably maybe comes from, I don't know. So, you know, that's one thing. But there's also this prayer that was included in a devotional I helped write, that he has just these beautiful words, if I might share these. Let us take refuge like deer beside the fountain of waters. Let our soul thirst as David thirsted for the fountain. What is the fountain? Well, listen, David, with you is the fountain of life. And so he says, let my soul say to this fountain, when shall I come and see you face to face? For the fountain is God himself. And that's where Ambrose always, always wanted to point people is to, to Christ and the fact that he is God and our Lord and Savior. Thank you, Dr. Lasky, for just this great history lesson and helping us remember Ambrose of Milan. Thanks for being our guest today, Dr. Lasky. Oh, it's my pleasure. Have a blessed advent to both of you. You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support The Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere.